Please stand as you're able for the reading of today's New Testament lesson from the fourth gospel, John chapter five, verses one through 18. After this, there was a festival of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, there was a pool called in Hebrew, Bethsaida, which has five porticos. In these lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. In these lay many, among which was a man who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd been there a long time, he said, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. And Jesus said to him, stand up, take your mat and walk. At once the man was made well and he took up his mat and began to walk. Now that day was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been cured, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your mat. But he answered them, the man who made me well said to me, take up your mat and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take it up and walk? Now the man who'd been healed didn't know who it was for Jesus had disappeared in the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you've been made well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews started persecuting Jesus because he was doing such things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is still working and I also am working. For this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, thereby making himself equal to God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be God. Please be seated. Well, thank you, Dr. McIntyre, for reading our lesson. Um, many of you know that Dr. McIntyre was my professor at Lambeth College, and I give you an A plus, sir, for your reading. <laughs> Unlike the one I never received from you, but we're grateful. <laughs> oh, it's so good to be together in worship today. It's the fourth Sunday in the season of Lent, and that itself is hard to believe, isn't it? Uh, tomorrow's the first day of spring, and uh, that is also hard to believe when you wake up to 19 degrees today, as we did, but uh, my understanding is tomorrow at 4.24 p.m., uh, spring begins, and we pray for warmer weather, and we're grateful for the lengthening uh, of days. Uh, I am so happy to see the Wallaces with us today, uh, who are from Lawrenceville, Georgia, favorite couple there, 
Uh, they are the favorite couple from Lawrenceville in the room today. And uh, it, it means a lot to see you all. We love you and we're grateful that you're with us. And I know Sherry is looking forward to seeing you. We had the Clemson Wesley Foundation with us at 945. So we had a score of students that were with us in the chapel who were here doing mission work at Second Harvest. And uh, they, they were just a delight. And they hung around afterwards. They were out in the narthex uh, just a few minutes before we began. And what a delight it is to have students uh, of Jesus and students in the university uh, at Clemson to be with us. It means a lot to have them. Uh, we have folks that are with us online uh, who are str struggling to come home after spring break, not sure they want to. And uh, we wanna welcome you uh, wherever you are and whatever state you're in. It means a lot to be with you in worship today um, as well. Well, we're continuing our series in week four called Cross Culture. If you're new today, let me tell you what we're not talking about. We're not talking about different people groups and so forth, although that's important. We're talking about the fact that as disciples of Jesus, our DNA is defined by the cross of Jesus. Our culture is defined by one who said, if you want to come after me, you must deny yourself, pick up a cross, which means shared suffering, and follow me. These last few weeks, we've been studying the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, and we've been looking at several conversations that Jesus had with individuals along the way, between Galilee and Judea, between Capernaum and Jerusalem. We looked at Nicodemus, who was a card-carrying Pharisee, which means serious one, who came to Jesus at night knowing that something was missing in his life. And then last week, we looked at the Samaritan woman, a woman of such questionable character that even the disciples were shocked when they returned to find Jesus speaking with this woman. She came at noon to a well and received living water that changed her life. But this morning, Jesus meets another struggling soul who apparently is suffering from some form of paralysis. Let me put this story in context. Jesus is again in Jerusalem for a holiday, a holy day. We don't know, is it the Feast of Tabernacles? Is it Passover? Uh, what it, we're not sure, but Jesus, as he's entering into the city, doesn't go first to the temple, as we might expect. He goes to the infirmary. He doesn't begin at the sanctuary, he begins at sickbay. Just beyond the northeastern corner of the temple, there is a place, Rusty, you read it, called Bethzetha. The Hebrew is bet hesed, which is a compound word. The prefix bet means house. Hesed means mercy, the house of mercy. There were twin pools there, fed by hidden springs, believed to have healing properties. I remember when we lived in Fayetteville, Georgia, South Atlanta, there was a place called Warm Springs not far from us where FDR would often go by train because of the springs there that he hoped would bring healing to his legs. There were five covered porches or colonnades surrounding the water where these needy, souls would gather or be carried, hoping, praying for some relief. 
Bethsatha was kind of a hub for the disabled. I think we've always known that people with a common need often find strength in shared suffering. We call them support groups. We have them next door, but Cannon House, AA, Al-Anon, codependence. We have it here, grief care, divorce recovery, uh, cancer support. It is true that we often find tremendous strength in shared suffering. I'm thinking of Henry Nouwen this morning, who the Dutch Catholic priest, also professor at an Ivy League school, who wrote a book called The Wounded Healer, in which he said, nobody escapes being wounded. We are all wounded people, whether physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. And the main question is not how can we hide our wounds so we don't have to be embarrassed, but how can we put our woundedness in the service of others? When our wounds cease to be a source of shame and become a source of healing, we actually become wounded healers. It reminds me a little bit of the text that we're going to look at on Easter Sunday in three weeks. That's John 20, where the risen Lord appears after Good Friday. On Easter Sunday, the third day, he appears to his friends who have apparently barricaded themselves behind locked doors of fear and guilt. And the first thing that Jesus says to them is, Shalom, peace. And then John says, he showed them his wounds. He didn't hide them, and neither should we. We've discovered that love always leaves a mark. And you don't have to hide your wounds, certainly not in this place. There's strength in shared suffering. I think this is what Paul had in mind when he wrote to the churches in Galatia in chapter 6, verse 2. I want you to bear one another's burdens, for in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Shared suffering. Bet Hesed was essentially, I think, a support group for invalids. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed, the weak. By the way, isn't it interesting that the word invalid can also be pronounced invalid. And sometimes our pain makes us feel invalid, unuseful, unacceptable. Some of you who've been reading the Bible with me through the year got a little bit stumped in, in Leviticus, didn't you? And I understand that. It's a difficult read. It's about holiness and the importance of holiness, which is critical to people of faith. But it's interesting to me in Leviticus 21 that the Torah in the book of Leviticus actually limits the service of disabled priests. Listen to the verse. None of your descendants who have a defect of any kind may present an offering of food to God. So if you're blind, lame, disfigured, deformed, crippled, in hand or foot, you may eat the food, but you must not go near the curtain or approach the altar. And I understand the meaning is about the holiness of God, and I think that's critical. But I also understand that there were some in that day who believed that such frailties and defects 
were the result of sin. And sometimes that's true, and oftentimes it's not true. There was a theology in early days that was corrected by the book of Job in the Bible that believed in what is called the theology of divine retribution. That means that anything bad that happens to you is because of your sin. And sometimes that's true, but oftentimes it's not. I remember how in John chapter nine, they came, Jesus and friends came upon a man who was born blind. And the disciples' question, which reflects this theology, was this. Teacher, who sinned that this man was born blind? But as the biblical understanding of God continues to unfold supremely in the person of Jesus, we gain a deeper clarity that God is not in the business of distancing God's self from our need. God actually draws us to his side in our weakness. But suffice it to say, these invalid ones did not always find a welcome in the temple. And so that's why they went to the house of mercy. And isn't it interesting that Jesus started there too? There was a man near the pool who was in bad shape. In fact, John, who is the gospel of great detail, says that this guy had been ill, had been sick, for 38 years. That's a lifetime. Literally, the average lifespan in first century Judea was 38. It's interesting you see that same number, the exact same number in Deuteronomy 2.14, talking about the wilderness wandering. It says the Hebrew people struggled in the wilderness for how long? 38 years. So this guy's whole life has been a wilderness season. John chapter five, verse six says that when Jesus saw him lying there, get this, he knew that he'd been in this condition for a long time. He knew. How did Jesus know? Well, the same way he knew Nathaniel was a person of no guile. The same way that he knew that that Samaritan woman had five husbands and was currently living with a man who didn't love her enough to marry her. Apparently Jesus, according to John, is not only a man of mercy, he's a man of divine wisdom. He knows. He knows his sheep by name. He knows when a sparrow falls. He knows the number of hairs on your head. This is a God who knows stuff about us. I don't know if I've ever mentioned Radnor Park to you, but it's a sanctuary to me. I often meet God on the trail, sometimes on Gania Ridge. And a friend of mine invited me recently to go out to, to see where the birds of prey live. It's a beautiful place. I met one of the rangers there. His name is Steve Ward. He's an ex-Marine uh, who went to MTSU and did his studies in nature and now has been the head ranger for 22 years. He introduced us to the eagles. Now, you can see that Steve and this bald eagle have one thing in common. 
This is an eagle from East Tennessee that was brought to Radnor. This eagle was actually shot, can't fly, and they test its blood twice a year to make sure that the lead poisoning is decreasing. Steve said, I'm going into the cage to see if she is ready to come out. And I said, how do you know if she's ready? And he looked at me and said two words, I know. (laughs) End of conversation. He told us later, as he brought this beautiful bird out, that he was her alpha. He said, when Radner first received this injured bird, he said, I went into its cage for hours upon hours every day. And at first she pecked my head, which was painful and drew blood, but I came back every day, every day, every day, hours upon hours, and she began to trust me. I I said, "Uh, Ranger, how did you teach her? He said, I didn't teach her. She taught me. And consequently, they have a trusting relationship. This guy knows eagles. And because of that, they trust him. Jesus knows us. Jesus knows me. And consequently, I have learned to trust him. Now, I recognize that it can be a fearful thing to be known. And sometimes we're not even sure we want people to know who we are in the church. Some of you operate by the mantra, to know me is to love me. But let's face it, sometimes we're so fearful that to know me is to reject me. But Jesus knows us. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me, says the psalmist. You, you know when I sit down and when I get up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You, you search out my path and my lying down and you're acquainted with all my ways. Indeed, even before a word occurs on my tongue, oh Lord, you, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon my heart and such knowledge is is just too wonderful for me. It is so high I cannot attain it. God knows us. And Jesus knew the condition of this man. In verse seven, Jesus asked this guy what I think on the surface is an absolutely absurd and offensive question. Do you want to get well? I mean, that would be like asking a beggar on the street, would you like a sandwich? Or or asking a parched soul in the desert, how about a bottle of water? Or or a prisoner, would you you like us to commute your, your sentence? Why ask a question to which you already know the answer? And here's what I think. This is not in the Bible. This is the Revised Chapel version. Jesus' question presumes that there are those who might not want to be well. It is possible for me to become so snug in, in my shortcomings, to be so content in my failure that I just lose desire to be whole, to be well. 
It is possible for us to prefer our fixations, our obsessions, and our addictions over recovery. And sometimes it's possible that we just kind of lose hope that things can be different or that we can be different. I think of Nigel Farage, the British parliamentarian who once said, the biggest tyranny in humankind is always the status quo. I think Ronald Reagan was the first to say status quo is simply a Latin way of saying the mess that we're in. And sometimes it's hard to help those who really don't want it. But this guy wanted it. Although it's interesting, his reply to the question, do you want to get well? Notice what he says. Sir, I have nobody to put me in the water when it bubbles up. Well, usually when I'm in a pool and I see bubbles, I I get out of the water, not in the water. So what does he mean? There was a legend in that day that when the warm springs came into the pool, the water would begin to percolate, which meant to those seated on the side, there is an angel in the pool. And the first one in the pool will be healed. And this guy believed that, but he'd been coming for all his life, and he needs more than a myth. He needs a miracle. And Jesus turns his full attention to him, he knows. And he says to him, get up, pick up your mat, and get moving. And immediately, the man was healed. Now, I wish we could just have the benediction right there and go home. I wish it almost as much as you do. But at this point in the story, verse 9, the whole thing goes south because verse 9 tells us something that we did not know up until this point. It was the Sabbath. Uh Uh-oh. When the religious authorities see this man carrying his mat, they call him out. Are you not aware that it's the Sabbath? Do you not understand the regulations here? It is not lawful for you to carry your mat on the Sabbath. And he replies, he throws Jesus under the bus. The man who healed me told me to pick it up and walk. And so I did. Now you would think at this point, the elders would say, oh, we didn't know. You're that guy. You were the lame guy for 38 years. It's time to praise God. Hallelujah. Strike up the praise band. But that's not what happens. Instead, they say, who told you to carry your mat? Point us to the man so that we can chastise him. The elders are more concerned about Sabbath law than they are about lame legs. Instead of celebrating a miracle, they're sweating a technical violation. Talk about lame And it turns out that the religious institution itself is disabled. They're more worried about religious regulation than spiritual regeneration. Although let me just say a word on behalf of the religious establishment since I'm a part of it. It's important to note that in Judaism, they defined community identity around three practices, circumcision, food laws, and Sabbath observance. 
So a challenge to the Sabbath law was a challenge to covenant membership and identity. To make matters worse, when they confronted Jesus, what did he say? My father still works 24-7 on the Sabbath, and so do I, healing and making whole. Like father, like son, and now they're outraged. They're out to get him for two things, breaking the Sabbath and making himself equal to God, both of which are capital crimes worthy of death. And verse 18 ends by saying, and now they're looking for a way to get rid of Jesus. The moral to that story to me is that when I prioritize polity over people (laughs) or structure over the Savior, I'm in dangerous territory. And sometimes without even knowing it, the religious institution can reject Jesus and we didn't even know it. This is exactly what Jesus meant when he was dying on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. When we become more preoccupied with preserving the institution rather than proclaiming the incarnation, we become spiritually lame. (laughs) Martin Luther King put it like this. Perhaps I have once again become too optimistic Is organized religion too inextricably bound to the status quo to save our nation and world? It's a good question. And some would answer yes, but I say no. I am keenly aware that institutions can become fragile and self-absorbed. After all, they're composed of broken people like you and me. But the church is divinely instituted. Upon this rock, said Jesus, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The key word in Jesus' words to me are the pronoun my. Whose church is it? It's Jesus' church. The church is ordained, instituted, initiated, sustained, and empowered by Christ. And so the question I'm asking myself these days is this, is what I'm living for worth Christ dying for? That's a good question too, if I do say so myself. Last word. Dallas Willard, you know that name? Dr. Willard was one of my spiritual heroes who died a few years ago. A former professor of philosophy at University of Southern Cal, a deep Christian, prolific writer, a wonderful man. One of his best books, and I've intentionally put it on the slide because I think it's a staple for disciples, is called The Divine Conspiracy. It's actually kind of a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the best books I've ever read. In an interview shortly before his death, Dr. Willard was asked about the challenges facing the church. Dr. Willard spent much of his life addressing the problem of why the church isn't raising up more people who look and act like Jesus. And at the end of an endless interview, two-hour interview, Willard was asked this pointed question. Listen to this. 
Dr. Willard, when you look at how off track the church can be, do you ever just throw up your hands in despair? And he smiled and said, no, never. But how can you not, asked the reporter, to which he said, because I know Christ is the head of his church and I think he knows what he's doing. End of quote. I believe that too. That Christ is the head of the church and I don't always know what I'm doing, but he does. And besides all of that, I'm seeing a lot of people around here who look and act like Jesus. A lot of people. And when you do, when we do, this house, this place actually becomes the house of mercy. <laughs> Bet has said. And that's my prayer in these pilgrimage days as we make our way to the cross. In Jesus' name.